Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that indeed Jesus shall take the highest honor because of his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. We thank you that in him we have new life, in him we have good news for the whole world. Father, we ask that this morning you may open our spiritual eyes to see the impact of the cross for this world and for our lives that we may embrace the cross, that we may give thanks to the cross, and we may live by the cross all days of our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat, brothers and sisters and friends. Well, we are almost halfway through the book of Revelation, and today we're going to continue uh, Revelation in chapter 12. So please keep your Bible open. Thank you, Dalit. Alternatively, you can just keep your outline open. Uh, this week, what I've done is I've printed the Bible passage, broken them into sections, the way that I've been going through them uh, in the passage. So you can follow the sermon using that. Let me begin by asking, do you find living as a Christian difficult? Have you ever wondered Why? Why is it so difficult to live godly lives? When I choose to do what God says, it seems to be going against the tide all the times. Sometimes more resistant than others, but nevertheless, there is always resistance in one form or another. Why do our societies tend to develop trends and cultures and make progress in directions that are very often going against my belief as a follower of Jesus? making it difficult for me to hold on to my values as a Christian. Why is it that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? Why must there be Christians suffering and being persecuted for their faith? Why can't the world just give us a break, leave us alone, and let us follow Christ peacefully? Why must there always be opposition, I mean, what have we done? All we did was follow Christ who died for us. Have you ever wondered that? Why is there so much opposition to simply follow Christ in this world? Well, have you ever got onto the wrong side of someone, got in the wrong side with someone else, and they make you suffer for it? Maybe you're unaware of the existing office politics when you enter the new job. You step into the office and you step on someone's toes on the very first day. She remembers it for life. And she makes sure that you suffer for it for the rest of your career. Revelation 12 gives us a theological explanation, a heavenly perspective as to why Christians face opposition. It is because someone is very unhappy with us, not happy with us at all, and he's Satan. We have offended Satan. Satan is desperately and furiously, but fruitlessly attacking Christians all the time. He persecutes us, he makes us suffer for aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at the passage. And you'll see how I come to that conclusion. Again, you can follow the sermon from the outline that's given. So let's begin with verse 1. 
It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, who is this woman? That will be the first question, isn't it? Well, she symbolizes God's people. The entire community of God's people comprising of both the Old and the New Testament saints. How do we see that? Well, firstly, she's pictured here with the symbols of sun and moon and the stars. It's a similar picture that appeared in Genesis 37. I've written down the references for you at the sites. You can take a look when you go home. In Genesis 37, it symbolized for us God's chosen people, Israel. Secondly, this woman is pregnant, crying out in child in the birth pains. If you take a look at verse 5, it says there, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 2, one who is going to rule all the nations with an iron rod. It refers to Israel's Messiah. So that means Messiah comes from Israel, isn't it? Israel is pregnant with a Messiah. Prophets such as Isaiah and Micah, they speak of birth pains of Israel just before the Messiah arrives. That is, the people are in anguish as they wait for the coming of the Messiah. The, the Israel is pregnant. But this woman cannot be symbolizing merely just the Old Testament people of God. Take a look at chapter 12, verse 17. It says there, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And who are they? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So it literally speaks of all Christians, those who keep God's commandments and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. So who is this woman? Well, she's the entire community of God's people, the mother church, the church, basically. Now, that's the woman. Let's take a look at now verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven, a great, great dragon. Behold, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven datums, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. We have another character, the dragon. Who is the dragon? Take a look at verse 9. Verse 9 clearly identifies this dragon as Satan, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Very clear. So in verse 3 here, Satan is introduced to us as a hideous enemy of God. That's the picture that we get. He has ten horns, just like the powerful and enormous beast of Daniel 7. He's red, perhaps symbolizing his murderous nature. And he has seven heads, perhaps symbolizing that he has multiple manifestations across history. And with his tail, what does he do? He assaults heavens. That is, he attacks God's order, he attacks God's rule, and he is against God all the time. Now, just as the woman is a symbol of real people like you and me, real people, real Christians that exist, the dragon here is a symbol of a real Satan who really exists. 
Satan is not a legend. He really exists. He's real. He's the serpent that we read of in Genesis 3. He's an ancient enemy of God from long, long time ago. He constantly opposes God. He constantly opposes God's plan. In the Old Testament, Satan is also called Leviathan, or the twisting serpent. But take note of this, a few references I give to you. In Psalm 74, interestingly, Egypt, who enslaved God's people before the Exodus, was referred to as Leviathan. And then in Isaiah 27 and 54, Israel's enemies, who were Assyrians and the Babylonians, they were referred to as Leviathan and the dragon. In Ezekiel 29, the pharaoh, king of Egypt back then, he was identified as the great dragon. Perhaps the most surprising, but the most helpful reference to understand who Satan is, is in Matthew 16. Anyone here know who is Satan referred to as? Who is referred to as Satan in Matthew 16? In Matthew 16, it was Simon Peter. One of the apostles. Matthew 16 says, Peter confessed, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. You see, only God could give sinful man, blinded man, eyes to recognize Christ. And he did that for Peter. And yet, Later on, when Jesus explained that he must suffer, he must be killed, he must be crucified, what did Peter do? He took Jesus aside and he rebuked him, saying, Far be it, Lord, it shall never happen to you. And this is when Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Peter. No. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus called Peter Satan. Why did he say that? Was, Jesus, was Peter suddenly possessed by Satan? And he babbled involuntarily. It didn't seem like it. It was Peter who was speaking. And yet Jesus identified him as Satan. Why? Well, Jesus explained. He said to Peter, Peter, you are, you, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but things of man. You see, behind Peter's words is the seductive work of Satan. His work of constantly opposing God, always trying to derail God's plan. Behind Pharaoh, behind Babylon, behind Assyria, behind Egypt, was the work of Satan. Behind King Herod, who tried to kill baby Jesus, was Satan engineering his ways to derail God's salvation plan. Satan was there in the wilderness to tempt Jesus, and Satan was there behind, Je behind Peter to tempt Jesus. Satan simply kept trying to get Jesus off the cross and derailed God's salvation plan. So here is the ugly but unpalatable truth for us. When a man, anyone, thinks like a man and not setting his mind on things of God, he is an emissary. He is an agent of Satan in his scheme against God. And we see that in Peter. Let's continue to look at verse 4. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she, was, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Well, the third character that we see here is a male child that is yet to be born. Who is this male child? Well, verse 5 directly, as I've mentioned earlier, directly identify him as the Messiah of Psalm 2, that is Jesus Christ. This picture, however, speaks beyond merely King Herod trying to kill baby Jesus when Mary was pregnant. That is, it, it does include them. That is, Mary representing God's people and Herod being the agent of Satan trying to kill Jesus. But the reference is much broader than that. It speaks of an ancient conflict between the serpent and the woman and the seed that we saw in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 15, God said, I will put enmity between Satan and the woman, between his offspring and her offspring. So what do we see here? We need to understand that throughout ages, there has always been constantly a war, a war in heaven, a war that you and I cannot see with our bare eyes. But there is a war nevertheless. All this while, Satan is determined to destroy the Messiah, repeatedly trying to destroy God's serpent crusher from day one. And here in Revelation, we see an aggressive and a very gross portrayal, image of who Satan is. He is prowling around a woman in labor, in the labor ward. Can you imagine that? Waiting to attack and devour the Messiah the moment the baby comes out, which is not what any one of us here will do. But Satan does that. How gross is that? But as we know it, Satan failed. The child was called up to God, he says, to his throne. That is, Jesus ascended to heaven and seated at God's right hand, out of reach of Satan forever. But notice something here that is said about Jesus, or not said about Jesus. Only Jesus' incarnation and ascension and exaltation is being mentioned here. Realize that? He's being caught up in heaven. He's a baby. He was born. He was caught up to God, to his throne. Nothing is mentioned about what we find very crucial, which is crucifixion and resurrection. Why? It's such a, ba such a big battle. Why is it not included? Well, I think that's because it is not the focus of this vision in Revelation. We have already seen that very clearly in Revelation 5, Jesus being portrayed as the slain lamb. The focus here in Revelation 12 is on the woman and on the children. What happens to the woman now? What happens to the woman now that the Messiah is taken back to heaven? What happens to the church now that Jesus has left, left earth and is now in heaven? What is going to happen to them? Well, it says here that God nourishes his people during that time. The image that is given here is the image of wilderness. The woman fled in the wilderness and she was prepared a place by God. The wilderness reminds us of God looking after Israel 
before they enter the promised land. The wilderness reminds us of God looking after Jesus when he was tempted by Satan to prepare him for ministry. God is still personally looking after his church even when Jesus is now in heaven. God is looking after his church, but if God is looking after his church, the question is, why then is the church still suffering and still being persecuted? Let's read on. Verse 7. And now, now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. And he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil, the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Here we have a glimpse of the war in heaven that was fought on earth. Let me explain what I mean. Michael is a warlike leader of the angels that is on God's side. You can see him in Daniel 10, the reference I gave you. He fought against the devil and his angels. He won and then he threw Satan down from heaven to earth. This victory echoes the victory of Christ over Satan on Calvary. When Christ defeated sin and conquered death through his own death and resurrection. But notice something here about this heavenly victory. With the picture of mighty Michael and his angels, how do you visualize this picture? It seems to me that this war looks very aggressive and very gloriously worn, isn't it? You can, I can almost imagine a knight in shiny armor with big swords, thunderous and brutally destroying Satan, isn't it? Victory, glamorous, great battle. But think about it. Where was this war fought? And where was this war won? Who and how did the Satan slayer look like? And what was his weapon? Jesus wasn't with Michael in heaven. Jesus lived, died and resurrected where? On earth. It was his earthly work of love, non-power, humility and sacrifice all of which seem frail and weak to everyone, that produce the concrete heavenly victory. Can you see what's happening? By not including Christ in this heavenly war, Revelation once again reminds us of the central paradox of Christianity. God mysteriously used unlikely means to win this cosmic war. Love, humility, non-power, obedience, and sacrifice. You see, to the unspiritual, to the unbelievers, the cross is weak and is foolish. But to those who are being saved, who are given spiritual eyes, Christ's sacrificial messiahship on earth was very aggressive, very supernatural, and it was a combat in heaven. Across the cross is a powerful and glorious and decisive victory of God over sin and death. 
ending Satan's tyranny over man all these years. So let me ask you, how do you view the cross? Is it a lost battle or is it weak? Here in Revelation, we see that the cross is powerful and is victorious. It won the greatest battle of all time for humanity. Because of him, the heavenly war is won, Satan is defeated and is thrown down. Take a look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And when they have conquered him, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have not loved their lives even unto death. What is Satan's key weapon? Satan's key weapons against God's people is deceit and accusation. Verse 9, it says that Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. And we can see that today. He deceives and he blinds the whole world. He leads people against God. He lied and deceived Eve into distrusting God's goodness. She in turn led Adam to disobey God. And Satan also accuses people before God. He accuses them for their sins, just as he has done with Job. But now, in verse 10, what do we see? We see an announcement, a loud voice from heaven celebrating. Satan has decisively been defeated on the cross. He lost his power to accuse God's people. Since Calvary, God no longer listens to Satan's accusation against God's people. For Christ has died for their sins. His blood has washed them clean before God. Salvation has come for those who are in Christ. Satan has nothing over us anymore. But we'll see in the next section that the defeat of Satan doesn't mean that Satan stops attacking. No, he continues to deceive and accuse God's people. But his accusation cannot harm God's people anymore. Because in verse 11, we have sinned. God's people have conquered him, conquered Satan. How? On the ground of the blood of the slain lamb. And God's people will always continue to conquer Satan as they believe and persevere in the gospel message, leaving it out in their lives. God's people no longer fear death, for in Christ they have been forgiven. Death can no longer hold them down. Just as Jesus is raised to life, they too will be raised to life one day. So friends, you can see that all these things make Satan very, very angry and frustrated. What else can Satan do to someone who do not even fear death? Not only does the person not fear death, he might even turn around and thank Satan for killing him. For to him, to die is gain and to live is Christ. Satan is just frustrated. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. 
But, but woe to you, earth and sea, for devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Satan is decisively defeated. He is thrown down out of heaven. He can no longer hang around with God in heaven, accusing God's people like he did in Job's day. Job's day. His power and his ability is drastically cut off by what Christ has achieved on the cross. In fact, you can see here, his realm of movement has been reduced. He is thrown down and he's constrained to the earth now. And that's why heavens is rejoicing. Satan is very, very desperate and very, very furious. You and I can imagine him counting down the days that he has left, every days of his life. 1,260 days left, 1,259 days left, 1,258 days left. His time is very short, and he knows it. Revelation 20, chapter 10, is locked. No, 20, verse 10 is locked in, and is definitely coming. 20, verse 10, that we'll be looking at in a few days, is the day that Satan is counting down to. 20 verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown down into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan's final end is coming very, very soon. 126, 1,260 days. It's not the exact days as Tim mentioned last week. It's just telling us that it's limited. You can actually count it with your fingers depending on how many fingers Satan has. But he can count it. It's limited. He is desperate and he's furious. And the following verses that we're going to read, we are going to see a clear picture of a desperate, furious Satan. Take a look at the last few verses. Verse 13 onwards. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth... He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that he, she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and a time and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a blood, with, with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river, and the dragon had poured that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Do you see the picture? I mean, in a bizarre way, I can almost feel for Satan. All his life, Satan has been trying to destroy the Messiah. But he failed, and he knew it. He wanted the child, he couldn't get the child. He went after the mother, he couldn't get the mother. And now he goes after the, her other children. He failed repeatedly. Why? Because God is simply keep protecting and nourishing his people out of Satan's reach. With eagle's wings, just like what he has done to protect Israel but he brought them out of Egypt. God is constantly protecting his people out of Satan's reach. 
Well, those are all the 17 verses that we have. Let me begin with where I started. Why is there so much opposition to simply follow Christ in this world? Why must there be Christians suffering and being persecuted for their faith? Well, friends, according to Revelation 12, as far as reality is concerned, the war is over. Christ has fought and won the war. Satan has lost his game over. When Satan brings suffering and persecution to us, it is not as though the war restarted. <laughs> he as if that he might win or he might lose this particular time. No, not at all. He has no chance at all. He has lost, you see, completely lost. The sufferings and the persecutions that he throws at us now in his last days are like toothless bites from a lion. It's like a pangless bite from a snake. They can't harm us at all. The most he can is just tickling us. No harm at all. And that helps us to see suffering and persecutions in a different light. It is as if I can imagine a conversation with Satan trying to attack me and having suffering and persecution at me. I can tell him that, hey, Satan, you know that you have lost, isn't it? You do remember that. You have lost. And Satan is angry because I reminded him, oh, I'm going to kill you. And I say, wait, Satan, you know that by making me suffer and by killing me, you are actually doing me a favor. You know that, right? Because through the suffering and killing me, God is sanctifying me through the suffering you gave me and preparing me for eternal life with him, which you do not have. And that makes him even more angry. He doesn't know what to do and he just wants to bash me more. And that's what's happening. You just tell Satan, I understand, Satan, you, you, you are frustrated, you are angry and you just want to throw your tantrums. Go ahead, it's not going to harm me at all. In fact, it's good for me. He's a pathetic Satan who has lost. And these are the last days that he has. And that's the picture, the spiritual reality that God is painting for us. God has won, Satan has lost. And how does this passage help us beyond what I've already said already? I think, it's, it's a, first of all, it's a warning to us. It's a warning that we are living in a critical juncture of salvation history, where the Satan that still exists, even though he is defeated, he is very, very furious and very, very desperate. He can take all forms and all means and use all things to bring sufferings and bring persecution to God's people. The anti-God mentality that he has will be mirrored in our whole world, in our economic system, in our political system, in our religious system, in our life, everywhere. And we shouldn't be surprised that the world is against us because Satan who is behind it is against us. It's a warning that we must be alert to observe these things. But at the same time, it is a word of encouragement. It's a word of encouragement because the cosmic victory has already been won. The clash has already happened in Calvary. Satan has lost. We are definitely winning. It is a matter of counting down the days. So we can take courage when we face persecution and we face suffering. 
Well, all this while, I've been speaking to the church. But this picture of cosmic war, as I've mentioned in my third sermon, it's a very confronting picture. It confronts us to where we stand. Because whenever a picture of the war is painted, there's only two sides. As you can see here, there are those who oppose God and there are those who are with God's side. And we see that clearly in the Gospel. In Luke 11, Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In John 8, Jesus said, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. You can clearly see that through this war, there is only two sides to humanity. One side that is on God's side. The other side is all opposing God, opposing His plan. And who would be your father if you're on that side? Knowingly or unknowingly, your father is Satan. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And that confronts us. Which side are we on? The gospel say you can cross sight, saying sorry to God for opposing him, recognizing that he has given us forgiveness in Jesus, the slain lamb, his blood washes clean. You can switch sides by believing and trusting in Jesus with him as your savior and your new king. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you may please uh, open our eyes to see the world in fullness, not just in social, political terms or in metaphysical terms, but to see it in the spiritual realms as well. And we thank you that in your kindness, through revelation, you have given us a vision of what is happening in the heavenly realm that has a direct impact or direct correlation with what's happening on earth. We thank you that you have opened our eyes today to see the apparently weak and lost battle on Calvary where our Lord Jesus was tortured and crucified to death is actually a big battle that was won in heaven where the ancient enemy our ancient enemy, who has held, who has been a tyrant towards us, who has held us captive, has been destroyed, has been defeated, and he no longer has power over us who are in Christ. So, Father, we ask that you may open more and more eyes in this world, that they will be rescued from the tyranny of Satan, they will stop worshipping him, and to worship the true and living God, who is one of love and of humility. We thank you, Father, that we are those who have been saved by grace through faith. And we ask, Father, that we may be those who are faithful during these times, that as we endure suffering and endure persecutions, we can endure it with courage. And as we endure, we'll be those who bring this good news that we have been told to those around us that they too may be saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.